Let's take our Bibles. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. This is one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament. And it contains just some awesome spiritual truths that will help us this morning to deal with difficulty and help us to deal with with opposition. And it will also give us, I, I believe, a greater understanding of how the Lord works to provide for us and to to bless us in those times. You know, every one of us has instances uh, in our lives when we've been opposed or we've been uh, frustrated or even when we've been uh, blocked from proceeding uh, with with what we're planning or or even worse, when we've been blocked from what we thought was right and what what the Lord was leading us to do. And some of those instances uh, may be fresher than others. Maybe you came in here with a with a little bit of a, of a frustration this morning or a little bit of a, a chip on your shoulder because um, you're dealing with someone or something in your life right now that, that's causing you irritation and causing you heartache. And that can be uh, even more discouraging and disheartening when uh, you feel you're being hindered from, from what you believe the Lord's calling you to do, what you believe the Lord is leading you to do. Now, we know there's always a huge... Uh, component of spiritual warfare in that, right? We always uh, know that, that the devil is constantly trying to block what's happening, but, but there also may be people uh, or circumstances or both that are, are kind of serving as a roadblock to that, and that can be really frustrating. And at its worst, it can sometimes maybe even discourage us in our faith or in our obedience. Now, when those things happen, and again, maybe that's Maybe you're going, oh, that's me this morning. I'm dealing with that right now. When that happens, what do we do? And how do we handle it in a a godly, righteous, Christ-honoring way? When you look back at the past frustrations and the past experiences, uh, what was your response? What was your practical response? In other words, what did you do just to handle the situation? And then what was your spiritual response? Because there's a spiritual component to everything. So how did you react spiritually? See, our past experiences, the reason why God sometimes says remember or look back, is our past experiences often shape our present attitude. And they often shape how we respond now. So if we're faced with a similar situation or a similar frustration this morning, how are we dealing with it now? What have we learned spiritually from those experiences? What are we learning right now spiritually? And how is that influencing us or maturing us? Or is it having the opposite effect? Is it, is it actually causing us, are we actually yielding and falling back and regressing a little bit because of it? Now, this account here in Genesis chapter 26 um, highlights this principle because what Isaac experiences here is is incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And it's especially frustrating because he's trusting the Lord, he's walking with the Lord, he's serving the Lord, and God is richly blessing him. But because of that, and, and there's a direct correlation here, because he's walking with the Lord, serving the Lord, being blessed to the Lord, he's being combated and hindered from moving forward. So let's kind of set up the background of the situation in the first couple verses of the chapter, and then we'll read a a bigger section at the end that will kind of lead us uh, to the main part of our study. So Genesis chapter 26, 
verse 1. Thank you for turning. If you don't have a Bible, we always have Bibles available. So um, if you walk in without one, you forgot it, or you just don't own one, they're available at the Welcome Center, and we'd love that to be our gift to you. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. Now, we see in chapter 25, if you glance back at that, that that his father Abraham had died, and Isaac and Rebekah have had twins. The twins' name are Jacob and Esau. You see that uh, in the middle of chapter 19. The boys get older. They have that uh, whole issue over the birthright, which is at the end of chapter 25. But, but we want to concentrate on the next problem that Isaac faces. The fact is that there is a significant famine in the land. It's a, a repetition of a famine that had happened when Abraham was alive. And, and where they're living at this point, which is, uh, if you know your, your map of the Middle East, it's northwest of Egypt, so it's southwest of what now is Israel. So in that desert between Egypt and Israel, that's where they're hanging out. And that's already a dry region. It's desert. So there's not an abundance of water where they are. And the fact that there is now a famine exacerbates that issue. Any any water that was there, any water supply that they were going to use now becomes uh, more sparse. And less water means difficulty. Less water means that you now uh, don't have water for your family, you don't have water for your flocks, and and there's a problem. So we see in the text that Isaac, in verse 1, goes to the king of the Philistines, and he asks him for help. Now, the Philistines lived in an area of which uh, we now know as the Gaza Strip, okay? Use time this week, if you don't already to learn the map of the Middle East, especially learn the map of Israel, because everything in the world this morning, believe it or not, is focused on Israel. The whole earth is is concentrating on Israel and on Jerusalem. So we need to really know our map of the Middle East, and we need to know our map of Israel. When you look at the map of Israel, it's shaped kind of like a a long triangle. On the left side of the triangle against the Mediterranean is, is what's known as the Gaza Strip. It's a disputed territory right now between Israel and the Palestinians. Well, that's where the Philistines lived. The Philistines lived in the Gaza Strip, the southwest corner of Israel. And they were kind of there. They were out of the way. They weren't really in the way of where uh, Isaac is going. And at this point in Genesis 26, there's really no animosity between uh, Jewish people and the Philistines. Now, the Jewish nation is very young because Isaac is the second generation. So God calls Abraham Israel, or excuse me, calls Jacob Israel. He calls Abraham to be the father of the nation, Isaac second. So the Jewish nation is still very young, but there's no conflict with the Philistines. Later on, when Israel becomes a great nation and rebels 
and constantly pushes against God, God would use the Philistines to be their arch rival. He would, he would use them to be the ones who, who came in and attacked and gave them uh, discipline. Because anytime you see the Philistines throughout Sem, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, anytime you see the Philistines, it means that Israel's rebelled. God used them as the source of discipline. But at this point, there's no conflict whatsoever. Now, as Isaac's doing this, as he's debating this, see at verse 2, the, the Lord talks to him and says, don't go to Egypt. Stay in this area that I've given to Abraham. Now, we tend to think of, of the land of Israel as those borders that we have now, and half of Israel right now is disputed, and the push of the world is to, to give the Palestinians a state to divide Jerusalem. Of course, we know that's not biblical at all. But the land that God actually promised to Abraham was, was much larger than what the nation of is, Israel is right now. It covered half of Egypt. It covered the northern half of Saudi Arabia. It covered uh, the southwestern half of Iraq. And it covered most of Syria. So if you go home and look at a map or you Google uh, the land that was promised to Abraham, which is what I did, that's how I found out, you'll see that it's this huge uh, almost square area of which Israel is in the center, but it's probably four or five times as large as Israel. So God says to Isaac, stay right here, stay in this land, and that includes Israel, and it includes where the Philistines live. And then if you look at what we just read, it says the Lord gives him a covenant of blessing that he's putting on Isaac's life, and it's a repetition of the blessing that God established in the covenant that God established with Abraham. And he says, the reason I'm reiterating this to you, the reason I'm giving you this, this covenant of blessing is as a result, look at the text, as a result of Abraham's faithfulness. So he says, I'm going to multiply you and you're going to be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, those four words, each of those four words has a different implication. First word means obligation or service. The second word means commandments. The third word means ordinances or rules. And the fourth word means instruction. Now, why is that important? Why does God use four different words? Well, he does that to show that obedience is, is thorough. Obedience needs to be full and thorough, not just part of it. Well, I kind of follow the word of God and I, and I kind of listen to God's instruction, but but. I don't know, there's some things that I don't want to do. Or I just do it out of obligation. I'm just, I'm serving God because that's what I'm supposed to do and I'm supposed to be spiritual and, and religious and I try to follow the Ten Commandments and do my best. That, that's, that's partial obedience. God says obedience needs to encompass every single aspect of our life. Everything needs to be surrendered. Everything needs to be given to Him. That's why He says it's our reasonable act of worship. In other words, my life needs to be Holy Christ. He bought me with the price of his blood. He owns me. He secured me. And now my life is not in my hands. My life's in his hands. He can do whatever he wants. And my job, my joy, is not to say, well, I don't want you to do that, Lord. I don't want you to put that in my life. I don't want you. My job is just to say, and my joy is to say, whatever you want, Lord. Whatever you want. That's the measure of obedience. Now Isaac knew that better than anybody that was living at that time. 
And he knew that because he could still see the look on his father's face when he raised that knife over him as Isaac was laying bound on the altar on Mount Moriah. And Abraham took the knife and raised it above his son, who was a teenager and who couldn't get loose and who was watching the test of Abraham's faith. Isaac knew when he looked at his father's eyes what it was to obey. Isaac knew the crying of the lamb that was stuck in the thicket. He could feel the ropes quickly by his father being cut off because now instead of the son being the sacrifice, picture of Christ, now there was a lamb that was going to be slain in his place. What a beautiful picture of redemption. Isaac could feel the tension of the ropes that were binding him being cut off and he could see and uh, his father and him lifting that little lamb onto the altar and watch it be sacrificed in his place. And when he thought about that, I'm sure every single day, because an experience like that doesn't leave you, right? Every day he thought about that and he knew that's what obedience looks like. See, obedience for Isaac was experiential. He could testify to it. And it hit me so hard this week. That is such an important principle. Can our children testify to our faith and our obedience? Do they see the constant, ex, uh, constant uh, exercise of our faith? Do they see the consistent expression of our obedience and our love for the Lord? Is it their everyday experience? So when they go away to school and they go off and get married and they have kids, or when we die, that they'll tell other people, you know what, Isaac saw the obedience and faith of his father, and I looked at my father and mother every day, and I saw that in them. Every single day. See, there's no way in the world that Isaac could have ever forgotten his father's faith. There's no way that Isaac ever could have forgotten his father's obedient, uh, obedience. And the extent that he went to, to, to live for the Lord. The Lord certainly remembers it because he says, I'm giving you this covenant because of Abraham. And Abraham modeled and built in you, Isaac, a strong, determined faith. And now it is your job to walk in a strong, determined faith and to teach your children, Jacob and Esau, one of whom is going to rebel against me and doesn't want anything to do with my blessing. But it is your job now to teach those children your faith and to model it every single day. See, we can tell our kids about faith. Oh, you need to trust the Lord, and you need to live for the Lord, and you need to, to love the Lord and, and, and serve Him. But if they don't see us doing that every single day, why would they listen to us? Why would they care? Well, you don't do it. Well, but, but it's important. You need to do it. Well, then why don't you? And you know they're asking that. Even if they don't ask it overtly, they're going to be asking it in their minds, and they're going to be talking to their friends. Oh, my my. My dad, my mom, they talk about living for the Lord and they go to church, but their, their everyday life's different. You don't think kids notice that? We have to model this for our kids. Testifying. They need to testify to our faith and our obedience. Oh, Lord, help us to do that. That every day our kids will be able to testify. My parents love the Lord. My mom loves the Lord. My dad loves the Lord. Maybe your spouse is in the picture. Maybe you don't have a spouse. I mean, we can still influence people for Christ so that they'll know that we love the Lord. So look at it. Verse 6, Isaac settles in Gerar, 
He's east of the Philistines now. And chapter 12 says that he, excuse me, verse 12 says that he worked the land. And the Lord kept his word. And the Lord blessed Isaac a hundredfold. How many know and affirm that the Lord's always faithful? When we walk with him, he will be faithful. And we're going to realize it more and more as we trust in him. That God's blessings for his children are abundant. But notice, Isaac doesn't do anything special. He's not, he's not doing really anything other than just trusting and obeying the Lord. And the Lord honors him first, verse 3, with his presence. And then second, verses 4 and 12, with his blessing. It's an amazing thing to be able to say that God is willing to bless us. Every day, I want to be humbled, and I pray you want to be humbled and awed that God even thought about the potential of forgiving us. I've, I've been hearing about Jesus my whole life. I've been in church since the day I was born, like little Abigail there. I've been in church since the day I was born. I've been in more church services than I can count. I've heard about the love of Jesus Christ all my life. I've heard about him dying on the cross, rising again, offering pardon and redemption, offering security, no record of sins, filling us with it's 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 wonderful, but let's not ever get dull to it, right? Well, yes, God forgives and it's wonderful and Jesus forgive my sins and thank you and God. No, I, I don't ever want to get dull like that. God wants to work in our lives and he wants to bless us now. And that should not make us feel entitled or, or impassive. It should overwhelm us daily and we should drop to our knees and say, thank you, Lord, I don't even deserve, not even for a second, your salvation. And now you not only want to save me, secure me, and fill me with your spirit, but now you want to bless me too? Now, now you want to work in my life? How much did Isaac feel that? Look back at the verse, that he was blessed beyond measure. And it says that he was wealthy. But let's not get caught up in the fact of his, of his wealth. The Bible warns about the danger of the love of money. The Bible says it's harder for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So we need to make sure that our priorities don't shift and that we don't become materialistic because it's far better to be rich in righteousness than it is to have a full bank account, right? I'd much rather have abundance of righteousness in my life than have abundance of money in, in my account. And the devil constantly pushes for greed and for lust and for possessions. In this case, Isaac is wealthy. He's got a lot. He's got wealth and family and livestock and land. But that's an important part of the account because the Philistines get jealous. They see all that he has and they get ticked off that he's moved into their country and that he's using so much water because he's got so much to, to sustain during a time of drought. I, I thought of those celebrities in, in California that, that complain about global warming and tell everybody they shouldn't use any resources and tell everybody what they should do. And then have you ever seen where the studies come out where they use like 50 times as much water as anybody else? or 20 times as much electricity as everybody else because they have these huge mansions on the hills of L.A. that, that need all this electricity and water to get by. But they're telling everybody, you should conserve. That, that might be what the Philistines felt like here. 
Isaac, we let you come here. We let you live in our land. There's a drought. You have so much wealth. You have so many people and so many uh, cattle to feed. And, and it's not like he's doing it or being arrogant about it. That's just how God's blessed him. But, but whatever the case, they're ticked off. So when Isaac goes and he starts to redig the wells, and we'll read this in a second, he starts to redig the wells that his father Abraham had dug, which the Philistines had, had gone and filled in. Once he does that, the Philistines come around and start to, to make havoc. So pick the account up in verse 18. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. In other words, he's claiming them back by using the same names. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water's ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too, so they named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they didn't quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth. For he said, at last the Lord has made room for us and will be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. This is not just an issue of needing physical water because five miles away from where Isaac was residing, there was a nice uh, flowing stream. Now, it was certainly more dried up because of the drought, because, uh, but, but this is not just about water. This is a, a spiritual conflict. It's a battle against the blessing of the Lord, and it's a battle of spiritual opposition against Isaac. And I say that because we need to remember that most conflict in life has those two prongs. And we need to be able to recognize both because the fact of spiritual warfare gives us the perspective on how to deal with personal offenses. It is not over-spiritualizing this morning to, to, to say that we need to remember the intent of the enemy in any conflict. It is the goal of the enemy. It is always his foremost goal to divide. He wants to divide marriages, he wants to divide families, he wants to divide churches, he wants to divide countries, he wants to divide anything he can. He doesn't care if it's spiritual or unspiritual, he is, is a, a, a being that wants to cause division. And there's never any restraint to his intent, and his intent is always ruthless. So when we... Uh, need sometimes just to see a conflict as that, conflict on face value, we also need to know that the enemy will come in and try to twist any conflict that's happening, cause division where he can, and to draw us away from the Lord. Because that's the, that's the division he really wants. The division the enemy really wants is to draw us away from the Lord. So Isaac has this situation, and, and every time he digs a new well, somebody comes along and either claims it or fills it with dirt. And I thought to myself, how do I deal with that? How, how, how do you and I deal with that when that happens to us? 
When somebody's harsh and malicious and vindictive toward us and talks about us behind our back or causes division in our life or in our marriage or, or, or in some way is just mean. Or where there's a situation where, where it's unfair and unjust and we know that, that it's not right and there's not much we can do about it and we're disappointed and we're frustrated. Or when, when our hopes and our plans are, are crushed or changed or, or, we're, or we're trying to dig wells and somebody keeps coming along and, and filling them back up. What happens when, when that happens to us? We not only are frustrated about the wells that are filled in, but we don't kind of have any more desire to dig some new ones. Don't you think Isaac felt that? Don't you think every time they dug a well, hey, we found water, this is great. There's flowing water here in times of a drought. And they turn around and the well's filled up with sand and dirt. Not once, not twice. They have to dig a third time. At what point do we give in to disappointment? At what point do we give in to discouragement? Well, I want to give you a couple spiritual principles real quickly this morning that I think will, will encourage us and will strengthen us for action when this happens to us. I want to encourage you to take some notes because I think the Lord's got a word for us this morning. The first spiritual principle, the first spiritual principle is that instead of letting opposition deter us, Instead of letting opposition deter us, we need to use it to become more determined to trust and serve the Lord. Instead of letting opposition deter us, we need to use it to become more determined to trust and serve the Lord. It struck me as the Spirit of God kind of taught me that concept, that the word deter is at the root of both words. And I never thought about it before. I don't know why. Sometimes the Spirit just teaches you something new, but but. The word is at the root of both words, but they're completely opposite concepts. To deter someone means to discourage them from doing something, usually by instilling doubt or fear of the consequences. So to to deter somebody is to discourage them by by making them fearful or making them doubt what's going to happen so they'll stop the action. Now, who do you think is at the source of that? We all know, right? So... Rather than being deterred, rather than being fearful or worried or, or discouraged or, or doubting how God's going to provide, instead of doing that and stopping, we need to become determined. And determined is a completely different word. It means to establish and decide, usually as a result of research. Now, both are actions, but one action is based on fear, and the other action is based on circumstance. Uh, excuse me, on, on certainty. One action's fear, that's being deterred. One action is certainty, that's being determined. And it's not a coincidence that over 500 times in Scripture, God tells us, do not fear. It's not a coincidence that he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to me, and the peace of God that fills, uh, passes all understanding will fill your hearts and minds through Christ. That's not a coincidence. That's not just a throwaway verse. And it's not a coincidence that God says, let me tell you how you can be confident. Because if you want certainty, you want to do research, I've given you a whole book of truth. 
And this book of truth will be your guide and your strength and your encouragement. Jesus, I am truth. I wrote this book. I am the living word. And you have my spirit in you. So I've given you a double-pronged attack. You have my word, which is truth. And you have my presence, which is truth. Now, you can move forward with certainty and be determined. So when the enemy tries to block you and discourage you and dishearten you and prevent you from moving forward in faith, just resist him and remind him that Christ has already got victory. Christ has already done it. And then we can prove that victory. We can prove that that's real by trusting Christ with all we have, determined to follow his leading. You know, it hit me again this week. The enemy does not have the ability to defeat us. Hear that. And in fact, I want you to say it with me. The enemy does not have the ability to defeat us. How do we know that? We say, well, he's so strong. Yes, he is, but he's already been defeated. His future has already been determined. Just go back to the book of Revelation and read about it. He's going to end up in the lake of fire. It's, it's sure. There's no way he's getting out of it. He's going to be bound and thrown in the lake of fire forever. So the enemy can't defeat us. Jesus has already won the victory. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't remember that the enemy has very strong goals to stop our faith. And he wants to soften our conviction. And he wants to stunt our growth. But he does not have victory. We are more than conquerors through Christ. Come on, you got to say amen to that one. We're more than conquerors. But he'll bring along situations like Isaac faces here. Digging well after well, only to have them be filled in and have to go to a new area that had to be discouraging. It certainly was annoying and frustrating and inconvenient. How often do we allow that to hinder us? How often do we allow discouragement and disappointment to shut us down? You know, how we react in those situations, how we react in difficulty, and especially in spiritual opposition, is so important. But, but the first time the well got filled in, Isaac's faith didn't waver. The second time the well got filled in, Isaac's faith didn't waver. Instead of resigning ourselves and saying, well... I don't know what to do. The problem's too big, and, and, and I keep praying, but it doesn't seem the Lord's really, really answering, and, and, and the opposition's so strong, I'm, I'm just worn down by it, and, and, and I, I'm just going to kind of give up. Instead, we need to see those filled-in wells, and this is a spiritual perspective. We need to see those filled-in wells as a new opportunity and say, Lord, okay, you've closed that. Now give me a fresh leading. Give me renewed strength. I want to trust in you in a fresh way, and Lord, I'm going to grab the shovel again and get digging. Oh, it takes, it takes spiritual maturity for us to see things that way, but that's what God's able to produce in us. And like Nehemiah and the people building the wall, we need to prepare. The opposition is not always direct. In fact, some of the most dangerous spiritual opposition that we're going to face is subtle and indirect. And sometimes when it's subtle and indirect, we think, well, I don't really need to prepare for that now. I'll, I'll deal with it when it comes along. But the Bible says we need to always be ready to give a defense. So how do we prepare? Well, Come back to what you're holding in your hands. One of our greatest strengths is the truth. One of our greatest strengths is the word of God. And we should know what the word of the Lord says. We should know how to give a defense. 
we should spend huge time in the Word if we don't. We had a discussion at Men's Bible Study on Thursday, and we said everything we need to know to live by and defend our faith is right here. You don't need a class, although we should probably offer one. You don't need somebody to walk through it with you. You have it in your hands. You and I can study it. We should be fully prepared based on the truth of God. And, and if we don't have the knowledge uh, for a defense, then we better spend some time in the Word of God. So the Word of God has power, and the gospel is the truth that convicts. And as we fill our hearts and minds with the Word and we share the gospel, many will respond to Christ, and many others will hate it and hate us because they hate Jesus. And he says the gospel is an offense to many. We can no longer think the days are long past where we are in the majority or we're going to be popular for standing on the Word of God. There is a new normal, and the new normal is rapidly, rapidly moving in. So now, if you, if you try to keep people safe by preventing people from the biological opposite sex from going into bathrooms and locker rooms, now there's national outrage that you would think such an awful, intolerant thought. And there's now economic boycotts. And rock stars of all people. Who cares about them? I used to listen to Bruce Springsteen. I'm done. Now, now, now students in Middletown, which is near Madison, we, we basically drive through Middletown to get to camp. Now, now they've been meeting for something. Do you see this? They've been meeting for something called a Jesus lunch. And the moms come in and they bring Chick-fil-A, which the whole nation hates because they dare to think marriages between a man and a woman, they, they bring Chick-fil-A, and they've had as many as 500 students meet in a park. They're allowed to go off campus for lunch. They meet in a park, and they talk about the Lord, and now the high school principal is saying, you've got to shut that down. They're free to do whatever they want at lunch. If they want to go to, to Arby's on their own, they can do that. They want to go smoke pot, they can do that. They want to run around and, and be unfaithful to the Lord, they can do that. But if they want to meet in a park and talk about Jesus, no, we're not going to have that. We're not going to have that. There is a new normal. But it shouldn't surprise us. Opposition should be expected. Why? Because Jesus says it's going to happen. So we shouldn't go, oh, I can't believe that's happening. Of course it's happening. And you know what 2 Timothy 4 tells us? It's just going to get worse. How are we prepared? How are we going to give the truth? The Bible says we have everything. Listen to that word. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. So now we just need courage. And we can't muster that on our own. That's why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because he gives us power and he gives us the convictions and the words that we need. And we're going to need that conviction and that power because the enemies of the gospel are going to keep trying to fill our wells with dirt. And that's so typical of the devil, isn't it? The devil loves dirt. His plans always involve dirt and filth. So what do we do? Do we say, well, the wells are filled in. What are we going to do? No, look at what Isaac did. We dig new holes. We empty the dirt so it can be filled with fresh water. And as I thought about that, I thought, what an awesome spiritual metaphor. We need to empty our lives. Listen carefully now. We need to empty our lives of the dirt and open ourselves up for the fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. 
the rain of God's blessing, the living water that we sang about earlier, we need to empty the dirt. Lord, search me and know me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Get rid of it. I want my heart and my mind to be completely pure so you can pour in that fresh water of the Holy Spirit and use me in a powerful way. Oh, I pray. We'll pray that every single morning. And that leads us to the second spiritual principle quickly. Because of the opposition, there must be a spiritual persistence and resilience to our walk. Because of the opposition, there must be a spiritual persistence and resilience to our walk. An Acts 4 kind of you-can't-stop-us mentality. Notice back in the text that between verses 19 and 25, Isaac and his men have to dig three different wells. And digging a well was no party. You had to dig through the sand. It was hotter than blue blazes because you're in the middle of the desert. There are no trees. There's no Starbucks to go to and get an iced chai latte, whatever in the world that is. There, there's, there's no fresh water and ice out of the fridge. There, there's no Diet Coke that's... There, there's none of that, okay? That's pretty good sound effects, right? There's none of that. They're in the hot, stinking desert... There are people depending on them, waiting for them. There are livestock that are, that are frustrated because they're thirsty. There are children running around. Daddy, when are we going to drink water? I'm so thirsty. When, when are you going to provide something for me? And, and now they have to dig another well. And to dig a well in the desert, you had to go down about 60, anywhere from 60 to 200 feet. Now think about that, 60 to 200 feet down, and you not do it once, you not do it twice, you have to do it three times because it keeps getting sabotaged. That would make me angry. I don't know about you, but that would make me angry. The first well they build, verse 20, look at it. It's a well they end up calling Essek, which means contention, because the Philistines come along and claim it as their own. Then they go to a second well, and they call that Sitna, which means strife, because they argued again there. Then they go to a third place in verse 22, and they call it Rehabeth, because there's no quarrel there. Rehabeth means a wide place. And isn't that just like the Lord? Struggle one, struggle two. Finally, they get to struggle three. And they say, I love this verse. They say, at last, the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful. Even when there are obstacles, even when there are difficulties and opposition, even and especially when they're a result of walking with the Lord and being aligned with Him, as we talked about two weeks ago, instead of being aligned with ungodly influences, even when that happens, we need to learn to be content in all things and to have a persistent faith and a resilient walk. How do we do that? Three steps that I won't develop. We'll preach it another day. Three steps to developing a persistent faith. Number one, forget the past. Forget the past. Isaac and his men could have sat around and dwelled. I can't believe they filled in the well. What are we going to do now? Now, he just moved in the next place. So forget the past. Number two, forgive as Christ forgave you. So much of our life is stunted by the fact that we are unwilling to forgive somebody who's hurt us. And even if they don't come to us and say, I'm so sorry, I repent, please forgive me. We still need to forgive them and move on. 
And third, forget the past, forgive as Christ forgave you. Third, live in the freedom and joy that only Christ can give. When we do those three things, the Holy Spirit then enables us and empowers us to stop abiding in a place of hurt and a place of disappointment and to move to the next place of fresh provision and fresh blessing. But listen, the Lord will not drag us to that place. God will never drag you by your heels. You're coming to my place of blessing. It doesn't work that way. He wants us to stop staring at the wells that are filled with dirt. You need to hear this this morning. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Stop staring at the wells that are full of dirt and move on from what's been unrighteous to go find spiritual water and spiritual life. Some of us are still, I've done it before so many times. God, forgive me if I'm this. I've, I've just stood and stirred at the well that's filled with dirt and said, well, that stinks. That's not fair. That's not right. Why did the person do that? And God says, I, I've got a place of blessing for you. There's a place of life. There's a place of fresh water, flowing water. You need to go there. Uh, well, well I, I'm still ticked off about this well. Somebody came along and filled this. Can you believe the injustice of this? And we start to talk to our friends. Can you believe? Can you believe? You believe I, can't, I can't get over this. We pray, God, get back at that person that filled my well. And God's going, right over here, there's new life. I'm, I'm, I, have you seen this well? Did you know this well is full of dirt? Did you know somebody came along and poured sand into my well? I am so frustrated. There, let's move past it. There's a place, a place of fresh blessing. No, I can't. No. No, I refuse. I know I'm being a little facetious, but not really, right? Not really. Look at what he says in verse 22. I love this verse. The Lord has made room for us. God is giving you room this morning for healing and for growth. But you need to press on and stay faithful. They never would have appreciated Rehoboth without first experiencing Essa and Sitna. You will appreciate God's blessing more. This is why he says, the trying of your faith works patience, and let patience, oh, this is a hard verse for me, let patience have her perfect work so that you might become complete. We have to go through the Essex and Sitnas of life to get to the Rehobeths, and God will not waste anything in your experience. He will use it to teach you and to use it for ministry later. So, verses 24 and 25, let's finish. I've talked too long. We have to press on in the power of the Spirit. The Lord appears. He reconfirms His promise. He's always faithful that way. And look at what He provides. Verses 24 and 25, He provides three things that we should want. He provides His presence, His blessing, and multiplication. And Isaac looks at that. And he doesn't complain, well, they filled in my wells. He builds an altar, and he praises God, and he makes sacrifice, and he worships him. And it's so obvious, oh, I love this. It's so obvious how much Isaac is honoring the Lord that the king of the Philistines, verse 26, we won't read it because of time, the king of the Philistines comes and he confirms the Lord's blessing on Isaac. This is an unbeliever. 
he comes along and he says, something different about you, Isaac. I don't know how you've done it. I know my people filled in the wells, and you just kept plugging away and building new wells. And now God's continuing to bless you, and it's frustrating, but there's something about it that just gets to my heart. Instead of being hostile and resentful toward unbelievers, we should want them to be won by our witness. We should want them to be overwhelmed by the fact that they reject Christ, they push against us, they change the rules, they change the Constitution, everything's different. But, but we're still, hey, the Lord's still with us. And it's obvious, and it's so overwhelming that they like, what is going on with you people? We keep trying to oppose you, and you keep having the joy of the Lord, and that's your strength. i I got to know about that. Finally, verses 32 and 33, we're finished. They dig in Beersheba. On the same day, Abimelech comes and confirms the Lord's blessing on Isaac. God opens a new well, and they say, we found water. This is the final spiritual principle. The Lord is always ready. The Lord is always ready to open up new wells of blessing. There is fresh earth that needs to be dug. The Lord can and will bless in fresh ways, but we have to be willing to step out in faith even when our obedience is being opposed, even when our plans are being opposed, even when our, when our walking with the Lord is being opposed. Listen, God's not in heaven this morning stressed or worried about the fact that we're being opposed or that he's being opposed. He's just going to use it to show his authority and his power and his greatness, and he's going to use it to prove his provision and his faithfulness to us. And that doesn't always happen easily. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that it usually doesn't happen easily. It happens out of the refining test of our faith. When I talk to Steve and Marcia, they're going something absolutely miserable right now. But we talked about the fact that God is using that refining. And they are stronger in the Lord than they've ever been. They're stronger in their faith that they've ever been. They're stronger in their marriage than they've ever been. Nobody would wish that on them. But look how God's using it. And Steve's witnessing to the hospice nurses who don't know the Lord. You don't tell me that's of the Lord? We're supposed to be complete in Christ. So God takes them to Rehoboth. It means room. God takes them to Beersheba. It means blessing. I don't know about you, but that's what I want this week. I want God to make room and then to bless. There's nothing better. And you know what? We need to ask him for that. If you need healing this morning, you need to ask the Lord for healing, emotionally, physically. If you need strength, you need to ask the Lord for strength. You need courage, you need to ask the Lord for courage. You need a stronger faith, you need to ask the Lord for a stronger faith that testifies. Because God answers prayer. Let's pray together.